You are listening to CBS Wire. On this episode of CBS Wire's podcast, we are going to talk about love. Not what love is, what it feels like, or how to make it long-lasting. Instead, we'll talk about the economics of love. Yes, economists are not only interested in the consequences of an expansive monetary policy. In fact, there's a whole field within economics dedicated to love, also known as marriage as a search market. And a parade of questions are waiting to be answered. What role does economics play in how we form relations? How is the market for dating changing? Can economists help a 29-year-old single like myself on a quest to get a partner? And why do economists even care about love? To answer those questions, I have teamed up with Stefan Kierkegaard Slug Massen, PhD in economics from CBS and host of the popular Danish podcast on the history of economic thought, Econ Roots. My name is Anne Lykkegaard, and I'll be the host of today's episode. Let's go. When economists look at relationships and love, we look at choices, and we look at those choices as forming markets, so the markets for potential partners, and contracts, such as relationships, such as, for instance, marriages or or, or other types of relationships. And um, in fact, it's actually a very pretty well-established thing to look at. The, the, the Nobel Prize in economics in 2010 was actually awarded in auction theory used on these kinds of issues. Marriage and relationships are different nowadays than they were in the past. In the past, they were clearly economic transaction, right? So people got married if you were a princess because you wanted to align the kingdoms or if you were, you know, you had, your, your dad had a farm and the neighbor had a farm and it sort of made sense. Uh, nowadays, we get married for something else. We get married because we want to, hopefully, and we have feelings for each other and so on. So how do we find these partners and what do we get out of it? What do we get out of this contract, right? So... Um, if we look at at the outcomes first, and that's a good place to start, we can see that marriages are the number of marriages are, and and state relationships are stable and but dropping a little bit in terms of divorces. So people becoming single after state relationships, they're rising but also falling a little bit. So the trend is falling off, but it's still a rising trend. That coupled with longer life expectancies leads us to observe something. It leads us to observe that people in relationships tend to be older and younger and younger people tend to be more single, right? That is also coupled with the fact that marriages and long-term relationships might have uh, an aspect of what statisticians would call the Lindy effect, which is an effect that says as long as something has survived, it's more likely to survive even longer, right? So people might be able to recognize that. Once you've been in a relationship, you sort of maybe stick around for it, even if you hit some hard, hard, uh, hard uh, patches along the way, which is probably a good idea because there's lots of benefits to being in a relationship. First of all, there are certain um, complementarities, economists would call it, about being in a relationship. First of all, we have production complementarities. So, for instance, it's easier to run a household if you're two persons, right? Like it's easier than one. Those are becoming less and less important due to technology, right? If you imagine getting married in the 50s, for instance, uh, a lot of the household chores took a lot longer time to do than they do now, right? Now most people have they have washing machines, dishwashers. Like You might have a robot to do your vacuuming now. That's one of the latest things, right? Like 10 years ago, you didn't have those. So, so those 
are still there, those complementarities, but they're less important now to most people. Then we have com- consumption complementarities, and those are still very much around. In fact, for certain demographics, they're definitely rising. So those could be, for instance, the kind of house you can live in, right? If you're single in the, in the Copenhagen real estate market, sort of hard to get a good place. I can see you're nodding now. You got, your listeners can't see that, but then it's not. Uh, it's nodding. It's sort of hard. Um, whereas if, you, if you're a couple, you might be able to get a house or at least a bigger apartment, right? So there's these consumption complementarities. Uh, and then, of course, there's risk pooling, right? So we will face uncertainties and risk throughout lives that we can't plan for. And it's nice to have some to share those with, right? So if you get sick, it's nice to have somebody to take care of you, right? If you uh, lose your job, it's nice to have somebody that can help you along. And it's also just nice to have somebody to talk to, basically, which is also a form of risk pooling, if we're very extreme with the usage of that term. So so that is what you get out of it, sort of, right? Like you get some uh, some complementarities and and you get to share life's experiences. All right. So even from an economist's point of view, it makes a lot of sense to be in a relationship. But the fact is that a lot of people aren't. According to Statistics Denmark, we had about 1.6 million singles in Denmark in 2016. And if we look at the 25 to 29-year-olds, 50.1% of them were single on January 1st, 2020. However, there's a significant difference between the genders. For example, 56.2% of the men were single, while the same figure for women was 437 Looking at municipality level, there is an overweight of single men in almost all of the 98 municipalities in Denmark, except for three. Gentofte, Frederiksberg and Copenhagen stand out by having more single women. Can economics explain any of this? So what does the theory then tells us about being single, which was your first question, right? Well... This was actually sort of interesting because the economist um, who got the Nobel uh, Prize, they apparently, according to Legend, they made a, fu- a little observation that maybe people can recognize in their own life. They looked around and they realized that they knew single people. They also knew married people, but they knew single people. When they looked at the subsection, the subsample that was single, it became very clear that there was a lot of cool female singles, like people, female singles who were had a great personality, had a great career, highly educated, fun, good-looking, great people to be around. And then they had a lot of male singles, but they all had major flaws. Like, they might be well-educated, have a good job, but then they were really ugly to be, to be very extreme about it, or, or they had an unpleasant personalities, or whatever it was. So how come this mismatch? How come you had these women that was really generally all around a good catch and then these men who could sort of, yeah, I can understand why that guy is single sort of thing, right? And then they came up with using uh, using uh, auction theory and what we call assertive bidding. They call up with the theory saying that as you go out and search from, for partners, right? Go out and search for partners. You, you have certain standards. You want a partner that matches your own standard. But as partners are taking off the market, that marriage pool, the pool of potential partners, gets lower and lower. As since more and more women are getting educated in all these things, that pool is getting smaller and smaller. And since 
women also have a capacity constraint, at least if they want to have kids and so on. Um, there's a strategy going on here as to how long should you wait for the perfect match. If you wait too long, the, 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 the available matches are simply worse and worse, right? So the chance of you actually finding that good patch, and I'm sorry to say this, is actually getting worse by every second, according to the theory. So, so this is basically uh, basically what we see, right? We see so so the strategy would be, um, and I'm not forcing any life choices on people here, but the strategy would be to relatively quickly land a mate if that's what you want out of your life. That's what the theory tells you to do. So that was some uplifting news right there. For every second I wait around, my chances for finding the perfect partner are getting worse. But that's still a chance, and I'm not wasting it. In fact, I've taken to online dating, like the dating app Tinder. Here I can meet more people than I would ever be able to, especially during these corona times. And don't worry, I'm remembering to keeping my distance and sanitize. However, according to Stephen, Tinder has revolutionized the way we date, and that's not necessarily for the better. I think the market for finding a partner has definitely changed. And one of the main changes has been technology, right? So we, the first thing was dating, right? In the past, if you go back to like the late 90s, early zeros, uh, people were embarrassed to say that they were dating online. That said, a lot of people were dating online. Uh, and then we had the Tinder revolution, and it certainly was a revolution, right? Now everybody has Tinder. It's a party game. You get it out. Not everybody has Tinder, obviously, Like, but people who are single would potentially have Tinder. And it's a party game, and you get it out and stuff like that. But that might have an influence on how you behave in the market. And um, so in the past, where would you meet your partner, right? You would typically meet them through places where you had a relational stake, right? So when we look at transactions as an economist, we say that one way to govern our transactions is the reputational effect. So if you are a jerk to other people and they tell other people it's going to be hard of you to have transactions in the future, whatever they might be, if you're selling stuff or working, like colleagues helping each other, whatever. If you're a jerk, what goes around comes around, right? That's relational. And with dating in the past, we used to date closer to home, so to speak, right? So we might uh, find people in the scout association or in the political party that we are a member of or, or the workplace. Lots of people met in the workplace, those kind of things. Uh, and there was a limit to how much of a jerk you could be there because it had repercussion. Right? Like even if you met the person at your favorite bar, that bar was a place you wanted to go back to. Now with Tinder, you could potentially be more of a jerk, right? Because it's easy to ghost somebody, stuff like that, because it's not really somebody you know, and they don't know people you know, so you know you can just sort of spread it around. And some people have argued that things like Tinder not only makes dating more transactional, whereas instead of relational, it also encourages that behavior. So for instance, in many of these sites, like I believe Tinder, so I am not on Tinder because I'm married, but uh, I believe Tinder is... Uh, you have like a 500 uh, character limits on your on your description, right? So that really does forces you to think really quickly and sort of like marketing-y and branding-likewise and those kind of things, right? So whereas, for instance, if you look at the behavior people on the old dating sites, those were really text-heavy, like, you know... Um, I've seen some studies that places that at several averages, uh, several pages averaging text, profile text, right? Which is like, you know, which is insane. But it sort of makes sense because in the past, when you dated through relations, 
uh, you sort of could check that person, right? You knew people that person knew. You knew if they were a decent person. Uh, and then you had this transactional technology, the dating sites, where you couldn't do that, but then you could read a lot of stuff. You could signal, as economists would say, I could signal I'm a good guy. Here's the name of all my past dogs and, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, whereas in Tinder, it's all about, you know, the meat, so to speak, right? And that's an issue. So, so, the, so the choice, I would say, <laughs> would be, uh, and this is very like, classic economic advice, so economist is about choices, right? Economics is about choices. But even more so, it's about the choices between people, the relations between people. That's what we call a market normally as economists, but sort of works as a relationship as well. So if you're focusing on the relationship, you shouldn't focus so much on the asset. So if you are out there dating and you're constantly looking for the perfect asset, so to speak, the perfect other person, you might miss what the combination of you two could be like. What would be what would be the market relation, the relationship with you two? What would that generate? What kind of synergies, to use a CBS uh, or to use an M&A kind of term, would, would that create, right? And I think if I were single today, I think my advice would be definitely to focus more on those relations part of it rather than is this a perfect match? Does this person look exactly like I want that person to look or... Or, or have, does that person have the precise hobbies I want that person to have or whatever? More interesting, like what kind of life could we shape together? What kind of complementarities can we build together? To so going back to the other things, right? You know, that, that's sort of like probably the more interesting thing uh, instead of focusing on the chase. And, and there's also one last point about this, which is really interesting is um, one thing that Cinder hasn't led to apparently, this is of course hard to prove, but it doesn't seem to lead to more breakups and it doesn't tend to lead to more um, uh, infidelity among people in all, who are already in relationships obviously this is hard to prove right this is hard to prove because we don't really know but there are certain indications when psychology more so than economics that the happy gardener doesn't look at the grass on the other side right so the grass might be potentially greener but if you're happy with the garden you have you're staying with this so even though it's easier potentially to cheat and it's easier potentially to find a new partner if you're happy in the relationship you're in it's not really an option it's not really something you think about or spend time on which also matches well with an economic observation amongst tinder users is that they actually spend more time on dating than we did before tinder so before tinder you might have a date averaging every two weeks you would get ready, you would clear your schedule, you would go out, have that date, and so on. All in all, an investment, let's say, five hours. If you're on Tinder today, many users report spending upwards of two and two and a half hours per day, which is obviously more over a fortnight. So if you're in a relationship, that would be the economic explanation. You maybe see that behavior, you're aware of that behavior, and say, okay, that's simply, that's actually not a free lunch. That's actually really high cost, right? So so now I'm, I'm sticking around, I'm trying to fix my marriage instead of just like opening, downloading Tinder and see what else I can find, right? I, I somehow realized that the cost is going to be huge, right? Online dating have obviously changed how we date, but more changes are approaching. Like the website OnlyFans, the platform has the potential to make it even harder to find a partner, according to Stefan. If you sort of um, look at the field as it is right now, what are, are there some aspects of it or some questions that, that comes to your mind that you feel like as a researcher, whoa, this would be so interesting to, to dig into? Oh, yeah. As a as a CBS guy, I the, the big thing in the room, I think, when I think about this topic is... OnlyFans. 
And those people who don't know OnlyFans, that you're totally excused. But it is a growing site, especially during the lockdown. It had a humongous growth. OnlyFans is presenting itself as a dedicated closed social media where you pay for access. And what does that mean in layman's term? It means that you, in order to follow a person, you pay that person to allow to follow them. Now, why on earth would you do that? Right? You know, <laughs> why on earth would you do that? That is actually a really interesting question. So let's look at what OnlyFans actually contains. OnlyFans does have some fitness providers, yoga instructors, those kind of things. But by far, most of what is on OnlyFans is basically pornography, right? Various degrees of it, but naked people, right? But again, why would you pay for that? There's a lot of that available for free online. So why on earth is people paying for that? And why are so many providing context for it? So that's a really interesting question. So many economists, not many economists, but some economists are wondering about this, right? So if we try to understand this, I guess we could try to understand this from a provider angle. So that would be the firm in CBS speak. We could understand it from a customer angle. So the people who are paying, and then we could understand it from a more societal level. So let's understand it from a societal level to start with. There are interesting changes in in uh, in our social experience that are starting to look like megatrends. So one of them is that the number of people who identify as lonely is gone through the roof. It's basically all statistics are called all Western countries. And it's not really correlated with that many things. Obviously, there's fewer lonely people in relationships, but there are also lonely people in relationships now. And of course, there's lots of sampling in this. Is it just because there's more focus on it? Is it okay to admit it now? You know, we have had a lot of um, like mental illnesses. It's more okay to talk about now than before. I'm not saying loneliness is a mental illness, but the mental conditions, these kind of things. So is that what's driving it? Obviously, it can be some of that. But it do tends to be a growth in loneliness, in experienced loneliness. And then if we couple that with some interesting statistics about people's sexual trends, right? So if you look at an American survey, a big American survey found that Uh, 2016 to 2018, 31% of men in their 20s reported having sexual relationship regularly. That fell between two, uh, between, uh, to, uh, to 19% a couple of years later, right? No change among women. Um, and at the same time, uh, people in relationships are also reporting generally having less sexual relationships than before. So that again contribute to that loneliness there seems to be a trend of loneliness out there and it's especially in men there's a lot of lonely men and it also sort of fits with the first thing we talked about right the the sort of obvious false uh, uh, kind of dating candidates that you may be meeting sometimes right we say okay there's a reason why this guy is single and it's it's not by choice uh, so so there's so that could explain sort of what's going on here there's a market for something else right Because many of these OnlyFans providers are basically describing themselves or being described by their customers as a sort of paid girlfriend, right? So it's a relationship. Many people see themselves as a relationship with that person, right? Uh, people can dislike that relationship, but that's how they see them. So, so let's start with the customer now. Like, so why would they pay? Probably because of loneliness, right? It might also be because, again, uh, the negative side of Me Too is maybe also there's lots of social insecurities now about how do we go around each other and how to behave each other. And if you are maybe uh, lagging a little bit in self-conscious or whatever, or just don't want to offend anybody or whatever it is, right? It could be very noble. Uh, this might be easier for you at a period in your life to simply just 
pay a person online that you then get exclusive quote unquote access to pictures that at least only other people who are also paying for them get access to which can still be a lot of people we'll get to that in a moment uh, and you can send like a messages uh, to that person that person will reply and that kind of stuff maybe it's easier maybe you can fill out some of that loneliness void right so it's probably not so much about the sexual nature of that content as it is about the fact that we are now uh, rearranging some of our institutional norms and uh, and we have this uh, degree of loneliness. So, so the last thing was the providers. Why are so many young women like yourself providing OnlyFans pants, right? I, uh, a surprisingly number of those. And, and they can make a lot of money. Like a couple of them, like some of the really top, top percent providers, reports making sometimes a couple of million dollars per day. And you think that figure is just fantastic, right? You think that can be done. But it's actually not that impossible when you do the math. Some of these can have many million of followers. They would upload a photo set, and that photo set is exclusive. So, you know, you pay maybe $5 to access it. And if even just like a percentage of their many, many followers does it, well, you made a million dollars, right? So, you know, I'm not saying everybody in OnlyFans made that amount of money, and I'm not promoting OnlyFans in any way, but I'm saying as a business model, it can be very attractive, right? Um, and it's fairly easy as well as a social media. It's easy to set up the accounts, right? You have to prove who you are and live up to some standards and stuff like that. Unlike, and I'm hope I'm really hope I'm not insulting anybody here, but unlike regular porn or whatever, there's not a lot of middlemen here, right? Obviously, OnlyFans get a cut, but uh, you know you don't have to pay. I don't know how that works, but a cameraman and uh, and like an agency and a production company and all that kind of stuff. You can sort of like a lot of this is home produced content, which is again some of the stuff that appeals to the customers when we ask them, is that they like that it looks you know homemade, right? They have this feeling of a girlfriend, and. Um, and then it's actually sort of politically okay, which is interesting, right? It's the one one expressed as like empowering your body in the in the spirit of entrepreneurship, right? Like you know, it's uh, this is what it is. Like it's for some see it as this, you know, almost a feminist thing to do, right? Um, you can question that though as well, because if you then look at at these profiles, uh, a study I found looked at them and, and compared them to Tinder profiles, and if you look at Tinder profiles who have stated in their limited amount of time explicitly male-dominated hobbies like basketball, Warhammer, um, like golf, and uh, I don't know, World War II history, There's these kind of like subjects that men tend to be about. It's only about 20% of, of, of females on there. If you look at OnlyFans, it's 80%. Yeah, <laughs> so so there might also be something here that these people are really well aware that they're selling an illusion or, you know, they're not, I mean, it's a product, right? It's a product that they're moving and that might also be the good strategy. Um, and uh, and also like one of the stuff they're selling is that you can like communicate with them. If you send them, a, if you pay a certain bracket, they will answer your messages, even if it's like horribly banned and boring and all that kind of stuff. Like if you're the worst flirter in the world, like you would never get a respond on Tinder, let alone anywhere else. You can pay this girl $5 a month or something like that and still reply to this horrible message that you're sending, right? Uh, not horrible in like, not that you're overstepping the boundaries, but just that you might, you know, not be that interesting, right? But now she's replying and she's even at least pretending to be into Dungeons and Dragons like you are, right? So, you know, it's... Uh, it's sort of like it, it can work for you. And uh, as an economist, I'm not judging anybody here. I can understand why this is, this is 
is is there and it's definitely huge like it's during the lockdown of the covid this is probably the biggest thing we saw we have seen some changes in tinder too tinder is actually pressured a lot because people don't want to pay for the premium stuff like you know the super likes and those kind of things because they can't use them what can you use them for if you can't meet people anyway so so Tinder is actually pressured. They have a lot of new signups. I saw that they've gone up 12% in their signups during the COVID lockdown. But it's nothing compared to the to OnlyFans and similar sites, which is like, that is probably one of the things we'll take with us from, uh, from 2020 going forward. But why is it again that it's interesting for you to look into trends like OnlyFans? As an economist, I'm so fascinated by behavior, fundamentally. I'm fascinated by choices, and I'm fascinated by what incentivizes us to take certain choices and behavior. So if you see a manifestation of social choices, like a company, which is the only fans, it's because something fundamentally is going on, right? And when something fundamentally is going on with how people choose to spend their resources, that can have a lasting impact in society. That's often how society changes, right? We can start with trying to change society, rearrange institutions, and see how that impacts resources and choices. But a lot of times it goes the other way. And I think something as intimate as love and relationship, that's something that generally tends to go the other way, at least today. Thank God for that. Or whoever, or whatever you believe, right? But but thank, thank, we should be thankful for the fact that these is, these are driven by personal preferences and not like, you know, you have to have the neighbor farm now, right? <laughs> not those kind of concerns. Uh, so when something like this is going on, it's interesting. It's interesting the fact that the human experiences might be fundamentally changing uh, here. So when you look ahead, what do you sort of think will happen with the in the way that we date or in the way that we have relations to other people and in the way that we potentially meet each other? This is such an interesting question and it's way too early to say anything with any sort of certainty, but I think the main question we should ask is an interest in OnlyFans, is that a passing thing for the customers or is that a lasting thing? Do people build a life around having monetary fake relationships? Again, I'm not offending anybody here. Some people could take their relationships with OnlyFans really seriously, so not no offending. But Or is it a passing thing? Is it something you do because you have a couple of years in security or because it sort of like makes sense in your life? Uh, and then I would just... If if that's the case, I think we're just providing a, like the market has just provided a good service that can be helpful. If it's translating into the fact that building real relationships is going to be harder for both parties because of this, uh, because obviously if you're competing against an OnlyFans page, where okay, fair enough, you might not charge money for when you're dating somebody, right? Uh, but I mean, at the same time, you're also not you, you're not you're not going to be expected to provide a service level, right? But if you're competing against that, that can be really interesting. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it affects the trends that we start with talking about, how many unsteady relationships and so on. Um, and then, of course, that will also impact, you know, the amount of kids we're getting. And like it can really quickly spiral into a hyper trend and a mega trend. Um, also, again, if you add life expectancy rising and these kind of things, it's going to be really interesting to see what these kind of technologies on such an intimate part of our life will actually do to us. And again, this is really early stuff. It's early stuff in terms of these technologies, but also just dating for love is relatively early. Like there are still cultures that doesn't do that, right? So this is a whole new level of human experience we're at now, right? And I think econ- economics can do a lot to help us explain what's going on. But of course, it's uh, 
precisely what will happen is, is beyond my uh, my capacity to to investigate. But I can I think I can point to some interesting questions to ponder at least. Okay, let's just rewind and sum up things a little bit. For a single like myself, online dating is, and especially during a pandemic, the easiest way around to meet people. But according to Stefan, I will potentially meet more jerks because I'm not dating through my workplace or via my friends. Also, I'm up against OnlyFans, which can provide the perfect partner online. Moreover, the longer I wait, the harder it will get for me to find a partner that matches my standards because they're simply taking off the market. So what should my strategy be? So so what should you do? I think, and again, this is way easy for me to say, I'm in a, I'm in a relationship and all that kind of stuff, but I think focusing on the relation more than the assets. So when you go into the market and you acquire a target, so to speak, right, a potential dating partner, there is a lot of focus on, you know, is that the perfect person and all that kind of stuff. Maybe thinking more about, like, is this a person I can build a perfect relationship with? And having those conversations quite openly, right? Uh, and being quite straightforward. A lot of men will run away from that, I know, but there, but uh, it's better to have those up front, I think, right? Then you're also not wasting your time. I think that's another strategy that's really important to not waste time, right? Uh, in that way, it's not so different than recruiting, right? So uh, there's a big discussion in recruiting whether you should state the pay package up front or not, right? And I'm a big uh, proponent of saying you should. Because why waste each other's time if you can't meet each other's expectation on that really important part of that type of relationship? Why then, you know, flirt, right? So I'm not saying you should take the magic out. And I actually think you are probably very good at, of course, realizing what is the potential between us and not of that person. But but I think that is one of the things. And in that way, it's actually not that different than what love actually is, right? Like, you don't love a person if you want to change that person, right? Then you love what that person could become. You love a person if you accept that person with all their faults and you love what you have together, right? That That's that's love, right? And then you were all the way back to like the early enlightenment uh, pe- uh, people discussing what love is and all these kind of things when these kind of discussions started, right? Um, so I think that has to be the strategy. It's, it's a really hard struggle. It is. Like, uh, I'm, I'm happy I'm not single today. I actually don't have, I don't, I don't think I could do it like <laughs> quite, quite easily. And also uh, I have small kids now, which is going to be growing up. And I think whatever advice I have for them from my personal experiences are going to be so obsolete. It's going to be from a different time. It'll be like, you know, my grandparents trying to give me dating advice, which of course wouldn't have been any use to me at all when I was a teenager. So, so yeah, you're, you're in an upward struggle. Uh, and you're right in the neck now of these megatrends uh, happening, right? So, uh, and we have today talked a lot about like this marriage search market is well established theory and insight. The the closer we get to OnlyFans, the, the less we have to go on on solid knowledge, right? So it's uh, it is hard. It's hard. Stephen just said it twice. It's gonna be hard. Maybe it's too big of a hassle finding a partner nowadays. Maybe I should just stay single. I have just looked up some statistics and research on being single. And it's not that bad, actually. According to a study published in the Journal of Marriage and Family, single people, and especially women, are more healthy. We exercise more and we have fewer sick days. 
Another study published in the journal Context found that people who had always been single were more attentive to their friends and family than married people. Single people also have a more diverse range of people they consider close friends. And then there is a financial aspect. According to Debt.org, 21% of single people had credit card debt compared to 27% of married couples without children and 36% of married couples with children. And just one last thing. Being alone is not the same as being lonely. And learning to appreciate alone time is, according to studies, really important to, for being self-sufficient. The more self-sufficient single people are, the less likely they are to experience negative emotions. Whether you have a partner, is living a nice life without one, or in the search for one, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast on economics of love. You can find more podcasts from CBS Wire on our website. My name is Anne Lykkegaard, and you have listened to CBS Wire. Bye.